0: Hey guys, uh, welcome back to our podcast. So this was a podcast idea that I have been considering for a while due to it being very interesting to me, but also something that I feel like might be of high interest to you guys as well. You know, I decided that now would be a good time to film it largely thanks to our growing audience and just how demanding some of this information really is. So with all of that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. And once again, thank you all for your amazing support. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. You know, I'm I'm going to be doing most of the talking and Isabella is going to be reacting live and asking a bunch of questions, you know, in live, Right. Mm -hmm. In real time uh, as the podcast uh, progresses. So with all that being said, let's start talking about the psychology behind murder. So all over the news, right, especially in California, which is where, you know, all of our listeners as of right now are from uh, school shootings are very common. And in other parts of the United States and, you know, globally, really, homicide is a big issue as well. Uh, According to educationweek.org, there were 51 school shootings alone in 2022 that resulted in death or injuries. And that is for the entire United States, by the way. Uh, But why is that? You know, there are other political issues as well that contribute to this problem, but we're not going to get into that. Okay, this is a mental health podcast, and mental health has a lot to do with the homicide epidemic here in the United States. You know, basically, Isabella, to put it simply, someone who does not have a mental illness is not going to go out there and want to harm someone else. It's plain and simple, okay? A level-headed individual that has good coping skills, that has methods of catharsis, which is what we call, you know, uh, releasing their anger, right? And they have a good support system in place to prevent themselves from escalating to that point, is not going to go out and, you know, want to harm someone, want to shoot someone, right? Right. However, there are people who don't have those things in place and that's what causes them to go out and you know, wanna kill or harm another individual. So there's a saying from a J. Cole song called Tale of Two Cities that goes like this, right? Anybody's a killer, all you gotta do is push them to their limits. I'm curious to see your thoughts on that saying, okay? Do you think that really anybody can be a killer if you really just push them to that point? Like, do you think that everybody has that ability in them? yeah yeah
1: no genuinely i don't want to like make this like a super heavy episode but it is like you're talking about the psychology behind a murder that's like a really like heavy topic this is going to be a
0: very heavy episode (laughs)
1: yeah i genuinely i do think that's true everyone has that like killer quote-unquote killer gene in them it just it's obviously not um visible for a majority of the people yeah but i feel like it is in everyone like everyone has that it's just if you press that button like if
0: not... okay well I'm, I'm very curious to see you know what our listeners think right so i'm gonna put that i'm gonna put that in the spotify question that you know a, allows us to publish right yeah. you know how anchor allows us to publish a spotify yeah. question i'm gonna put that i want the listeners to answer that question what do you think what do you guys think? You know, do you think that anybody has the ability to turn into a killer if they're really pushed to that limit? Let us know, right? What about you, Andrew? Well, I want to I say yes. I want to say yes, okay? You know, if you really push someone through that limit, like if they're like really pissed off and just like constantly, constantly just having like bad news and just like angry thoughts and angry events just shoved down their throat, I really think that. Yeah. Everyone will snap.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, there's a limit and everyone will snap, right? Yeah. But, you know, look, these individuals that do go out and do these absolutely just nasty and just horrible things to other people, they all have one thing in common, okay? And that's that they need help. Okay? Yeah. Intensive help. According to psychology today, the most consistent psychological feature among serial killers appears to be extreme antisocial behavior, such as lacking empathy, incapable of showing remorse, showing no regard for laws or social norms, and having a strong desire to revenge themselves against society. Based off this information, it's safe to assume that a large number of serial killers or school shooters or murderers have an undiagnosed case of antisocial personality disorder.
1: Okay, but are these people, like... Like, does this just, like, naturally happen to them because of a cause of events, or are they kind of, like born with that mindset or does it just like happen
0: this happens due to a cause of events and we're actually going to dive right into that okay. you know like this is like the psychology of a murderer what causes someone to get to that point okay so we we uncovered the first risk factor which was an undiagnosed case of anti antisocial personality mm, yeah. disorder and then we're going to get more into like the actual causes like risk factors coming up right okay. now So, really quickly, what antisocial personality disorder is, according to the DSM. So, antisocial personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others occurring since the age of 15, as indicated by three or more of the following, right? So, there's seven bulletin points that, you know, they need to have at least three of in order for this uh, diagnosis to be given. Those seven bulletin points are... Failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors, as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. deceitfulness, as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. Impulsivity or failure to plan ahead. Irritability and aggressiveness, as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. Reckless disregard for safety of self or others consistent irresponsibility as indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial obligations. And the final one is lack of remorse as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another. Now, this diagnosis has to be given to individuals who are above the age of 15, because if they're below the age of 15, then they get a separate diagnosis, conduct disorder. We'll cover that in future episodes, but just wanted to point that out. So with all of that criteria out of the way, right, I'm sure you're wondering how an individual got to that point, which is, you know, the question that she asked me a little bit earlier. So what made them have this perception of the world where they just don't like people, they just don't like social interaction, they feel like individuals deserve to suffer, they believe that the world is a dark place, the list goes on and on and on. What got them there, okay? Well, that same article that, you know, I referred to a little bit earlier by Psychology Today, right? The authors of that article state, most serial killers have some early history of trauma or neglect, and some, but not all, also engage in early delinquent behavior. Engage in early delinquent behavior. Sorry about that. So there were three common traits that were shared by some repeat offenders, which were animal cruelty, fire setting, and bedwetting. Those were some of like the common delinquent behaviors that I mentioned earlier, right? Um, So those were like, what we saw in the murderer's upbringing before they committed their first act. Those were like the very common like, risk factors that mm-hmm. these murderers committed before they actually went out and killed uh-huh. someone, mm-hmm. you know? But I wanna circle back to that first part of the quote where it discusses trauma and neglect. I feel like that is a huge risk factor because traumatic upbringing could definitely have an impact on your perception and how you view the rest of the world. You may be stuck with some preconceived notion that, you know, because X, Y, and Z person are evil, then that means that everyone else is evil as well. And once you have experienced those traumatic things happen to yourself repeatedly, it's really hard to come out of that unaffected. When all you know is trauma, and all you know is pain, and all you know is evil, you start associating all those traits amongst other people you see, whether you know them or not, because that's all you've been exposed to, right? Right. We call that overgeneralization,
1: you know? Earlier, you said that like, um, murders like consider themselves to be like antisocial or like, you said that right? Yeah,
0: antisocial personality disorder.
1: Okay, but like, so many people joke around, they're like, oh my god, no, I'm so antisocial. I think it's like important to say they're confusing, they are
0: confusing that with avoided personality disorder. It's two completely separate, different diagnoses. Antisocial personality disorder is basically like they believe that the world is completely messed up, you know, they believe that people that people have evil intentions, you know, they believe that, you know, they need to get revenge on the world. They show no remorse for the yeah. people that they hurt. Like they're against socialization. Yeah. They're against forming yeah. you know meaningful social relationships. Right. Those ones where they, you know, they just don't prefer to have social, you know, relationships, that's more avoidant personality disorder. But antisocial personality disorder is just like, you know, completely just not showing remorse to people, you know, deliberately hurting people on purpose, like disregard for the rights and like, you know, the like rights and privileges of other people. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's important to know the difference
0: between those two. Yeah, you know, If you want to learn more about it, you can always just rewind this episode and go see the DSM criteria that was mentioned a little bit earlier, right? Um, There's also a lot of tunnel thinking whenever it comes to traumatic things, right? It's a very common trait you see with patients who have gone through traumatic experiences in the past, that they have trouble considering alternatives to their line of thought, right? Add confirmation bias on top of that, and you're left with an individual who already has negative views of the world who only refuses to acknowledge newfound beliefs and information that conform to those negative views and has a lot of difficulty being accepted to opposing views and information that goes against their own views, right? That's what confirmation bias is. It's whenever you're only choosing to acknowledge new information that supports your beliefs and you're just ignoring all the other information that goes against them. So now, right, now you have an individual who's so messed up from previous pain and trauma in their life, who already has a negative preconceived notions about the world and about society in general, who already finds it really difficult to see other alternatives to their thoughts and their views, and someone who doesn't express remorse, guilt, empathy, and have any regard for social norms. All that's really left is anger, okay? Trauma is what's going to get them to the thought or idea of harming someone. Anger is what's going to push them over the edge to actually go out and do it, right? And that anger can come from many different ways. Okay, familial struggles, relationship issues, interpersonal issues. Bullying is most common with school shooters, right? right? All of these factors combined with someone who either doesn't have or doesn't care to have proper coping skills in place already to manage their anger. And you're left with an individual who lets his and anger out on other people, right? Yeah. In the form of, you know, getting a gun and putting people in them. For, you know, I didn't mean to get so dark, but that's just the truth, right? Yeah. Let's talk about risk factors. We touched up a little bit about it briefly earlier in the episode, but, you know, let's, let's dive in completely, right? The two biggest risk factors for a homicidal individual are a diagnosis of a personality disorder, most commonly on antisocial personality disorder. However, right, there have been some links to paranoid and narcissistic personality disorder as well, right? And the second risk factor is a history of childhood trauma and abuse. Those are the two biggest risk factors, right? Antisocial personality disorder and history of childhood trauma and abuse.
1: Is it hard to get once a person is like identified as a murderer? Is it hard to get them like out of that? Like, is it hard to get them out of that like mindset?
0: As of right now, based off of just previous records and previous studies that have been done, yes. Okay, because the treatment that we have for you know a murderous individual is very brand new. You know, we're still learning a lot about it and we still are not 100% sure like what's the most efficient type of treatment to use. Yeah. So this is something that we're still learning like right off the bat, you know. Yeah. A lot of times, whenever we do know that an individual is at risk of committing harm to other people, therapists are mandated reporters and they might have to get like law enforcement involved and this individual may spend an indefinite amount of time in like a psychiatric hospital or a psych ward, you know, just having someone to supervise them to make sure that they don't go out and do those things, right? That's usually very common, you know, for individuals who have, you know, those risk factors and who have stated, right, to therapists in their sessions that they feel like killing another person, right? If a therapist usually hears that during the session, they're mandated reporters they have to tell the proper agencies, they're probably gonna be placed on a hold indefinitely in a psychiatric hospital, yeah. right? So, you know, just like every diagnosis, the earlier the intervention, the better, right? Treatment would typically involve treating the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, as well as coping with a childhood trauma from the past. Most therapists would usually start addressing the traumatic issues for healing from those experiences would make the therapeutic process a lot easier for the patient down the line, But this is not a scripted approach and every individual is different, as you know, right? So I want to dive into the treatment processes a bit. You know, the therapist's goal would be having the client slowly be exposed to the thoughts, memories, and activities that remind him of their traumatic past, thus making it more acknowledging that those events occurred and being able to embrace and really like live with it. You know, this is very similar to the treatment approaches that are used for panic disorder and, you know, really just involve one thing exposure exposure and exposure okay we discussed that a little bit in our episode about generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder so if you haven't seen that one go check that one out as well i highly recommend it but it's very similar right it just involves constant exposure to either the thoughts you know images or memories of that stimuli right Right. typically therapists would start with an imagery-based exposure which involves the client just sitting down and just thinking about the event replaying you know in their head or maybe out loud and examining their body, bodily reaction towards you know revealing that story, right? The therapist might look for things like hesitation and struggling to share full details of the story. You know, the client might actually start crying or feeling very stressed out as if they're kind of forced to share things that they don't want to, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the goal is to get these really intense emotions. That's what the therapist wants. The purpose for this is to get the clients comfortable sharing their stories and the therapist helps them relax and calm themselves down afterwards. This might take the entire session, right? But it opens the door to trauma recovery because the therapist has created a comfortable setting for the client to open up about their traumatic past, which is very important. That's what's going to increase the efficacy of the treatment.
1: Mm -hmm. When a murderer, like, commits a murder, Mm -hmm. what goes on in their head, like, after they do something like that? Like, do they ever feel like remorse or are they kind of just like like numb not to emotions? not
0: all the time okay like i mean every murder is different but you know we did talk about most murderers serial killers having an undiagnosed like case of antipo- antisocial personality disorder and a big characteristic of that diagnosis is not showing remorse they don't show remorse so they're just
1: you know? numb to every emotion basically most of them, yeah.
0: Most of them are. You know, they're numb to every emotion. And serial killers, right? You know, individuals who have killed at least three people, yeah. right? That's what psycholo- psychology today defines as serial killer: Someone who's killed at least three people. They got to be feeling really numb to be able to go out and do that again and again and again. You know, it's, it's, it's really crazy. But yeah. that's a very big characteristic of antisocial personality disorder. Yeah. Not feeling remorse after doing something so terrible yeah. like that. You know, so going back to the treatment for uh, traumatic right traumatic disorders, PTSD or any other type of traumatic disorders, right, after you know the client sits down and you know really engages in that imagery exposure, right after that has been done, we might move on to more graded exposure. So that involves actually using some external stimuli to remind you of the trauma. The therapist and the patient would create what's known as an exposure hierarchy, which involves having the patient rank trauma reminders that bring up the most distressed. So, for example, right, if someone has PTSD from a car accident, their hierarchy might look like this. Level one, read three news articles about car accidents. Level two, for 20 minutes, listen to the song that was playing during the accident. And number three, go back and drive on the road that that accident occurred. The whole goal of any type of exposure therapy really is to combat our avoidance to symptom-causing stimuli because the more we avoid things, the more we become scared and fearful of that stimuli, thus creating our reactions towards them much stronger the more we avoid it. So what therapy would teach you is that facing those stimuli head-on and not running away from them, even if it involves something terrible that happened to you in the past, facing you know those stimuli head-on Is what's gonna make you less afraid of it, if that makes sense. You know, because the more you try to avoid it, the stronger your feelings and emotions and reactions are towards them. So it's gonna be really difficult to recover that.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So once the individual has become more comfortable speaking about their traumatic past, the therapist may transition into working on their antisocial behaviors. Antisocial personality disorder is a really difficult disorder to work with, as for a lot of the onset has to do with genetics. Okay, almost as much as 50%, according to Linda Seligman and Lori Reichenberg in their book Selecting Effective Treatments. Right, Linda and Lori, I'm gonna refer them a lot by their first name because their last name is just difficult. Um, Linda and Lori did note that a common characteristic with antisocial personality disorder is an underdeveloped orbitofrontal cortex in the brain, which is the area that controls impulses and social and emotional decision making. Linda and Lori also added that children who go on to later develop APD grow up in families which first-degree relatives had APD or, you know, substance abuse problems as well. So there is, like, some sort of passing down genetically right, in okay. cases of APD, right? As far as treatment goes, it's quite difficult, as I mentioned earlier, mostly due to the unreceptiveness of the client, okay? That's what makes it so difficult. Those with APD typically only enter therapy because they are court-ordered. So most of the time, they had to have already done something terrible before getting the help to prevent it.
1: Do murderers tend to open up about either like murderers or serial killers, like either tell people or tend to open up like that they're planning on like doing said thing?
0: Sometimes they do, okay? Like sometimes they have, you know, in like the impulses controlled enough to where they don't want to do it and they actually want the help to prevent themselves from getting to that point so sometimes you know they might tell their therapist hey I'm having these types of thoughts you know they're very impulsive I don't know how to control it but I need help you know they might tell the therapist that and they should right it might be very difficult for them but you know they should be proud of themselves yeah Yeah, they should be proud of themselves for seeking that help exactly you know so obviously
1: do they like have like this might be, like, a stupid question, but, like, do they have, like, a target? Like, do murderers, serial killers have a target of who they want to, like, kill? Or is sometimes. it just, like, like whoever, yeah. like, the first person they see they need to, like...
0: No, sometimes they do have a target. You know, it's usually people who have wronged them in the past one way or another. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's someone that they know. You know, someone that has done something, you know, wrong to them. Something that they didn't like. Someone that has wronged them in the past and they feel like this is the best way for them to get revenge.
1: It's
0: really scary. Yeah, <sighs> definitely. You know? But those with antisocial personality disorder, typically they only enter therapy because they are either court-ordered, right? They're court-ordered the or you know, they're forced yeah, one way or another, right? So that's why therapy is very difficult, okay? And it's usually a condition of parole or probation, okay? So court-ordered for parole or probation, right? Um, sometimes they're even treated when they're already incarcerated, so they're treated in the jail, right, in the jail cell. Okay, that's what makes it so difficult. It's that you must have consent from the patient to perform therapy on them, and you can't give consent on behalf of someone else unless they're conserved or have power of attorney, right? So, if someone with anti personality disorder who is not court ordered but has a diagnosis needs help, that but they refuse to seek it, then legally there's nothing that can be done, right? If they have that diagnosis and they're not court ordered to seek therapy and they don't want help as long as they don't go out and you know do something illegal or you know do something harmful to the point where they're court ordered to seek therapy as long as they don't do that there's really nothing that can be done because you can't provide therapy to someone who doesn't consent to it yeah you know but but right but let's say you are able to have an intervention for antisocial personality disorder what might that look like Okay, well, according to Linda and Lori, again, from their book, Selecting Effective Treatments, early intervention is key, as is the case with, you know, many disorders, right? Just and, you know, it
1: early.
0: exactly, starting it early, starting the, you know, therapy as soon as possible, yeah. right? Early intervention is key, and it stems from training children the use of empathy, okay? So they're teaching them about a lot of empathy and how to be empathetic, Okay. For children, you may see a lot of parental intervention, which means getting the parents involved with the therapy process, right, and incorporating the parents, you know, into the therapeutic setting, pretty much. So parental intervention, right? In adult treatments, it's even more difficult, okay? There's already such limited research on this topic, but as far as what we do know, cognitive behavior therapy combined with social skills training and problem solving had the most effective results, right? There's also schema therapy, which involves giving people with antisocial personality disorder a chance to discuss their past, which they would be less defensive about compared to their current behaviors, so they would be more open to like, talking about their past than right. their current behaviors, right? And thus creating a bridge to a discussion of current activities, right? So you want to get them to discuss their current activities, yeah. but you might you know, start by having them discuss their past. Right. Because once they're comfortable talking about the past, which is usually what they're more open to doing, then that creates a bridge to talking more about like their current behaviors right? yeah finally right there's a mentalization based therapy which basically integrates cognitive and relational components of therapy with a foundation based in attachment theory right the purpose of mentalization based therapy is to provide a safe therapeutic environment in which the person can focus on anxiety provoking internal states and teach them to recognize when they're about to act out and replace those behaviors with healthier alternatives very simple stuff you know so there you have it folks right the psychology of a murder pretty much stems from previous childhood trauma and undiagnosed personality disorders that alter the person's views of the world combine that with stressful and anger-provoking life events and you're left with an individual who's at a much higher risk to harm another individual we hope you enjoy learning about what makes a murderer, as well as treatments that might be implemented to help them out. Thank you so much for listening, and please help us reach our goal of 50 listeners by sharing this episode. Thank you all for your amazing support, and we'll see you next week.
1: Goodbye.